what I characterize as the second act of the pandemic is the toll on our mental health. And this is showing up in the workplace in terms of burnout, in terms of loneliness, as we were talking about, but even in terms of suicide. And at the heart of this is the need for connection. Welcome back to an all new season of Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever-changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hey, Jane. Hey, girl. Hey. Well, Laura Putnam, our guest today, is an international speaker, author of Workplace Wellness That Works, trainer, consultant, and the CEO and founder of Motion Infusion, a San Francisco-based well-being provider. Laura has been featured in numerous media outlets such as USA Today, ABC, Forbes, and Good Morning Arizona. Her work has been covered by MSNBC, The New York Times, U.S. News and World Report, Entrepreneur, Business Insider, and NPR. She's received various accolades for her work, including the American Heart Association's 2020 Impact Award and the National Wellness Institute's Circle of Leadership Award. She also chaired the American Heart Association's Greater Bay Area 2020 Task Force. Laura is also a former urban public high school teacher, public policy advocate, international community organizer, dancer, and gymnast. She holds degrees from Brown University and Stanford University and resides in San Francisco with her fiance. Listen to this show if you're an employee or employer who wants to gain a deeper understanding of workplace wellness and how it can benefit you. You're interested in learning about the latest trends and developments in the world of work and how they might affect your career, or you want to explore practical strategies for promoting mental health and well-being in the workplace and how to create a supportive environment for all employees. Well, Laura, welcome. This past year has obviously been such a wild ride for the working world. Obviously, we started with like you know, I just think everyone was thrown into this hybrid and work from home environment that they were wholly unprepared for. You know, I actually just spoke about this out on a panel at South by Southwest. And I was looking around at this group of women that were this group of powerful, badass women. And they clearly all wanted to like have their own, you know, be in control of their own life and their own professional world. And they had fought for this work from home or hybrid work environment, but it's like, no one gave them the rule book. No one gave them the toolkit. So I feel like a lot of people are just very maybe unprepared for some of the workplace shifts that have become our new normal. So I'm so glad to have you on to kind of maybe parse out some of, maybe some of what was pandemic fad and is going to get back to like our old normal and what is here to stay and how people can best navigate it. So First of all, thank you for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Jamie and Heidi. It's great to be with you all. Yeah, we're really grateful for your expertise. So, you know, for some, somebody who really looks at this stuff day in and day out and is, is looking at trend reports, let's just talk about the whole move to hybrid working environments. How are people managing? It's like, I'm hearing even big companies like the New York Times going on strike when asked to come back in the office. So it's not just a Gen Z issue where people are kerfuffled because they never had to go into an office. Now they're being asked. It's like people who have been in an office and in the these legacy businesses are really rebuffing potentially going back into work. So do you think that this new hybrid work environment is completely here to stay? Or like, where do you think we're going with the future of work? Well, I think that the best way to describe it is the genie is out of the bottle and it's hard to stuff the genie back in. 
So, you know, people have had a taste of the flexibility that comes with a hybrid work environment. And we are hardwired to want autonomy and flexibility. We want flexibility in where we work, when we work, and how we work. Nobody likes to be micromanaged. And it's been this giant gift for everyone to have that level of flexibility. Now, on the other side of the equation... It's clear that we are more disconnected and we're lonelier than ever. And while we're still connected virtually, it just can't replace those face-to-face connections. And, and what I'm hearing a lot is from the executive level, they're really wanting people to be back in the office and they feel really strongly that you need to have people in the office to be able to build a positive culture, to have opportunities for mentoring on the job and for innovation to happen for those kind of incidental kinds of interactions that really foster a great culture, lots of innovation, lots of teamwork and lots of learning on the job. So You know, it's really hard to say where we're going to go with this. I know that there's going to be a lot of back and forth on this. Uh, You know, companies like Amazon, they're asking people to come back in and people are kicking and screaming they don't want to go back in. So I think it's going to be, you know, nobody really knows at this point where we're going to go with this. It's, I mean, it's so wild. Like you hear so many different things, right? Like you hear that like the productivity is so far up or you hear people are like quietly quitting because they're not in the office. So there's so much conflicting sort of data surrounding this, right? So one of those things that we keep hearing about that keeps getting thrown around, I feel like is a four day work week. Do you have any thoughts on that? There is research saying that it's more effective. Is it, I mean, I don't know when I hear about the 40 work week, what I personally think back to is summer Fridays, right? <laughs> and like, who's not happier on summer Fridays to get all their work done before those summer weekends. What do you think about those? There's a lot of positive research around this showing that people are more productive. And and I really think that that's a great compromise for us to be thinking about, you know, those executives that want people to be back in the office. And then those employees who are wanting to retain their flexibility and their autonomy. I think that this is a great way to go. And again, the research overwhelmingly shows that it really seems to benefit both the bottom line as well as people. And um, so you get people in the office more, it's kind of, you know, okay, you'll get a four-day work week, but let's get back into the office so that we can reap those benefits. And I think so much of this, you know, really comes down to having authentic, transparent conversations with people around, here's not only the benefit to the bottom line, but here's also benefits to you. And I think that, you know, what I'm seeing is what I characterize as the second act of the pandemic is the toll on our mental health. And this is showing up in the workplace in terms of burnout, in terms of loneliness, as we were talking about, but even in terms of suicide. And at the heart of this is the need for connection. There is nothing that we need more than connection. And in fact, one of the longest standing studies is a study out of Harvard that looks at longevity and it's been running for over 80 years. And they've been following Harvard graduates for over 80 years and looking at their quality of life and how long they live. And they have found that hands down, the thing that matters most is love and connection, love and connection. And there just is no way to be able to replicate that unless we're in person. And we see that in the blue zone studies too, right? Like the people that live the longest are the people who 
are in a society that's set up to connect all the time. Like they have to go to town to do this and they have to see people to do that. And so there's that too. But I feel like also talking about flip sides again, there's also the lack of boundaries of this, like not being in the workplace. It's like, well, I can email you at midnight because you're working from home. So your bed is your office. You are absolutely right. And and what the research has shown, for example, another study out of Harvard found that our email load has gone up. Our number of meetings have gone up since we've been working in these remote environments. And, you know, for many of us, our commute may be from the bedroom to the kitchen or from the bedroom to the living room. And there's another study that came out that found that if you're on a a call like this one right now, there's a 50-50 chance that the person on the other end is in their pajamas or in their boxers. 50%. (laughs) They're not even getting fully clothed. (laughs) But I think that it just goes to show that it really is that much harder for people to really be able to delineate between work time and life lifetime. And the commute, while it was difficult for many, uh, it also served as a really helpful boundary between the ritualistic time between work time and lifetime. And so the challenge for many of us now is to try to recreate that kind of commute, if you will. So, you know, I'm commuting to work now, I begin with some kind of ritual, and then I'm ending my day with a ritual to really start to draw those boundaries more. That is so important. I was just speaking to this group of of women. I was speaking at an event called Create and Cultivate out at South by Southwest, which was really a dream of mine to speak at because I used to attend. I used to go as an audience member. And, you know, I was one of those young women who I had a corporate job, but I had a side hustle and I just wanted to learn how to like, what did it look like to be an entrepreneur or could I do it? And what could I learn? And here I was getting to be the speaker. And and I was trying to say, when I was writing my speech, I was trying to think of the perfect thing. And what I realized was it, it actually was a little simpler than that. And I ended up leaving them with three points. One was, you know, solo does not mean alone, right? Mm-hmm. You still have to, the connection, right? The personal and professional development that I used to get just from traveling with my boss. And Heidi, I might've told you this story before, but like I used to learn as much from watching her order her coffee at Starbucks in the airport as I did from being in the boardroom with her, right? And you're not gonna get that on a Zoom. You're not gonna get that connection and that that interaction and that learning by modeling that you would get. And the other tips that I gave, one was, you know, fire yourself. I was talking about learning how to you know, use outside resources. But also I just said, you know, the third tip was solo, but also YOLO right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you have to also focus back on self-care and the things that bring you joy and creating space for those things. Because I hear this four-day work week and what I think is the less that I'm supposed to be in the office is like the more that I'm I'm working boundaryless from home in bed. I mean, let's be honest. I just sent Heidi a picture of myself right before we sat down for this podcast. <laughs> I am currently in sweatpants and slippers because I've been on conference calls from early morning and I'm on back to back until literally after 11 o'clock tonight. I am all day and into the night. And that is just where we've landed, right? Like this new normal is literally the wild west. And it's, it's, I think it's what a lot of us thought we wanted, 
But now that we have it, we're like, oh shit, like how does this actually work, right? And that's why I was trying to imbue these women with just a sense of like, take it one thing at a time. So that kind of ladders into my next question, which is just about mental health in general. You know, I think Mm -hmm. many companies masquerade as caring about wellness and self-care and all of that because they're supposed to. They're supposed to have a corporate wellness program and it's a box to check. But meanwhile, I used to come teach at those wellness programs all the time. (laughs) They hire somebody like Heidi, and they hire someone like you, Laura, who goes in and does workplace wellness, which is great. But a one-hour workshop or a half-day workshop, and then taking your foot off the gas with regards to helping your employees is not enough. So I see these people trying to check a box and then simultaneously, you know, causing menti bees for their for their staff, you know, the the colloquialism for for a mental breakdown. And um, they don't really seem to be fully invested. So what do you say to that, right? Like how can employers make corporate wellness not just a box to check, but a real ethos? You're spot on with this. And it's so frustrating to me. You know, it's, it's often the companies with the most bells and whistles around wellness and well-being are the ones where well-being does not live by and large. And what is clear is that no amount of lunch and learns or yoga or mindfulness or deep breathing can make up for having to do the work of three. It cannot make up for having to tolerate a toxic boss day in and day out. And at the heart, everyone wants to know that the organization that they work for, that the boss they work for, and that the team that they work with, that they actually care about them. That's well-being in its truest sense. Well-being in its true sense is that I get to come to work as my full authentic self, that I'm accepted for who I am. I feel a sense of belonging. I get to do important work and I get to manage my energy along the way. So I have opportunities to take breaks, for example, when I need to take a break or what it looks like to take a break can look very different from one person to the next. For one person, it might be going for a run. For for another, it might be calling a loved one. So these are the kinds of things that, that we really need to be looking at. And if you look at the research, I mean, it's just abysmal. What the research overwhelmingly suggests is that over 80% of eligible employees simply opt out of those well-intended wellness program. So people like Heidi and me coming up, uh, you know, even if people do show up, they're not necessarily reaping the benefits if the overall structure doesn't support well-being. And so, so often I see this mismatch between the programs that are offered and the way the work gets done. And so, but that requires hard work. And is the organization willing to do that hard work? And is every leader and every manager willing to do the hard work as well and really take a look at themselves? Am I personally taking care of myself? Am I modeling this for my team? Am I talking about well-being? I mean, do I even know what well-being programs are available to us here? I mean, so often when I train these managers and leaders, they haven't even heard of half of the offerings. And then am I thinking about creating systems within my team if I'm a manager or across the organization, if I'm a a, a top leader, if I'm an executive, that normalize well-being, making it a way of life. That's well-being in its truest sense. I have so many thoughts about so many things that you just said. (laughs) Sorry, I think Jamie and I both do based on Jamie's reaction. So a lot of things came up for me when you were just talking. So 
I think that like when I used to go in and teach yoga classes or breathing exercises or meditation techniques, how I felt was the it was one more thing that the employees had to do. They weren't getting extra time in their day on the days that I would come in. So it felt like a burden placed on them rather than something to ease their collective burden with the mental load. It was taking time out of their day so they might have to stay later that day or they would have to, you know, it just was taking time away from their work. So that's how I felt about that specific situation. And that reminded me of so many people I know. Specifically, I mean, I think that women are getting better and better about taking maternity leave, some, um, if their company offers it. But paternity leave specifically is so frowned upon that even if your company allows it, people are so reticent to take it because you get basically like punched and kicked if you do, even though it's quote unquote allowed. It's almost like, well, we have to say it's allowed because it's required by law, but it's totally not allowed. It's totally not acceptable. And that's sort of how I feel about that one. But the one that triggered me first, which I think is sort of a little more charged, and I think, Jamie, you may have something to say about this, too, because I know we feel a little similarly on this topic, is when you were listing out like all the things somebody should feel at their job, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things and for some reason, this is where I where I was like, wait a minute. When you said, like, am I doing important work? Mm. And I think, like, for somebody, for me, let's just say, I see all these, like, Gen Zers or whomever is coming in and being like, I want this and I want that. And And they have earned zero. Like, it's their first day on the job and they haven't put any work in. And so I'm not saying that people, there should be, like, a, a sorority hazing for new people at the job. But I I think it's really challenging as someone who runs her own businesses, you know, we all do when somebody comes in and wants the world for no work and you're like, well, okay, how about you work for like, I don't know, five minutes and then let's talk. Just like put a little bit in before I give you the whole world back. I feel like there has to be a balance there. And I think that sometimes when you're the, you know, lowest person on the totem pole, you're working to get to a place that you get to do great work. Being the assistant account executive or whatever, you're coming in and you're getting people's coffee and you're making a lot of copies and you're doing a lot of grunt work. Like you're not necessarily maybe able to see the bigger picture that you are, in fact, a very necessary cog in the wheel of the greater work that's being created. So I just like I struggle a little with like the over entitlement versus believe me, I think everybody should be happy at their work. I think that's really important. And that's what keeps people places. But I also think that in our current society, there's also a lot of over entitlement. How do you feel about that balance? James, do you feel like I got it? <laughs> I, think, but I also think it's a generational conversation. I think people around our age who are going to hear this conversation right now are going to be like, yeah, right on. And younger people are going to be like, what's she talking about? Because it's, I do believe that this is a very generationally divided conversation. Laura, what do you think? I I couldn't agree more. You know, I've trained now over 15,000 managers and leaders, and this is something that I hear over and over and over again, is this sense of entitlement from younger workers that they're just not willing to take the steps to get to where they are today. And, you know, I think that there's a middle ground here. I mean, one is to, to really help those younger workers to frame what they're doing in the context of why it matters. And that's something that can really happen. And I think it's also... You know, one of the things that I talk with managers, particularly managers a lot about is this idea of psychological safety. Psychological safety is this idea that everybody on the team feels safe to take so-called interpersonal risks. So you can ask a question without feeling like you're going to be 
told that you're stupid or that you're included in the conversations. Um, The two underpinnings for psychological safety is one is that there's relatively equal shared airtime, which is really interesting. And the second is that people on the team are paying attention to social cues. So they're noticing if somebody's feeling left out. And what the research overwhelmingly suggests is that when there's high psychological safety, then that's when these teams really perform at their best. So at Google, they were looking at, you know, what makes the dream team, the perfect team, the highest performing team. And it was psychological safety that mattered more than anything else. And so I think that if you're thinking about psychological safety, it's like, okay, how do you (laughs) include those younger workers in the discussion, help them to feel like that they matter, and at the same time really explain how, just as you all spoke about, there's a lot of different pieces that go into creating work that matters and help them to see how that, even as trivial as those tasks may seem, how it contributes to the greater good. And furthermore, help them to see the progression to where they want to be. You know, one expression that I've heard that I think is so great is help them grow or watch them go. (laughs) And so I think that that is particularly true with young people. So help them to grow, help them to understand how those pieces fit into the larger puzzle. And and at the same time, hold them accountable, right? (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I couldn't agree more. And Heidi, I totally agree. And you know, I agree with you because we've had this conversation before. I think a lot of this also came from the discussions that were had like five or six years ago where all of these interns all of a sudden were angry and they were suing Vogue and they were saying, they were were like, we need to get paid to like, you know, get Anna Wintour's coffee. And it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. When I was younger, those were coveted jobs, but here's why. Because when I was an intern, I might've been, and by the way, this is before we had computers to do this stuff. So I I worked in a PR office. So I remember cutting the media clips that we got our clients with an X-Acto knife and then pasting it with a glue stick. We would do what they were called paste-ups and then we would Xerox it and fax it to the client. Now, was I out there talking to the editors myself and writing press releases? No, I was literally cutting things with an X-Acto knife and putting them on something with glue. But by doing that, I got to see what kind of press coverage our clients were getting. I got to understand who the writers were. I got to see how we merchandise that material back to the client and how we built their reputation and their brand image. I got to learn what public relations was. And quite similarly, like I mentioned earlier, in the context of it all, I got to see how my bosses operated while that was all happening. And that was as valuable as my college education was. And that was my internship. So that's, I think, why somebody like me a couple of years later, when these younger kids were asking to get paid for that, I said, no, 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 no. This is where you pay your dues. But Laura, to your point, I have always liked the idea of, but then value those people, right? So like when I have interns and I've had interns throughout my whole last 20 years as, as an employer, I'll always say at the end of the day, hey, do you want to pull up a chair and, and watch me write this press release? We can talk it through. I'll show you how I'm doing it. Or, hey, do you have any questions about that? Or can I show you how to do this? Because I do believe that mentorship is like an inspiration boomerang. Every time I've taken on a mentee, I've mentored somebody, I've gotten just as much in return. So I think we both it's a two-way street, right? It's annoying to see that type of entitlement, but also maybe we all have to just take a breath. And if we stop looking at them as entitled and say, okay, all right, let's help them learn what the value of this is, right? So they don't come in with such a huffy and puffy attitude. (laughs) Maybe we could all be happier. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think you were able to make the connection 
but not everybody else is able to make that connection between those seemingly trivial tasks and how they connect to something bigger. And so that is part of being a great mentor as it's, I love the inspiration boomerang that you talk about. Really a, a great manager, a great leader is a teacher. They're a teacher. And uh, a great teacher derives inspiration from that growth. And so um, you kind of draw that inspiration around helping to kind of draw forth that understanding in the people that you're working with, even if they might be difficult for me (laughs) at the outset. Um, But it's it's all a learning process, just like in school. Also, it can happen in the workplace, too. 100%. 100%. Absolutely. It's just another like degree that you're getting if you are, you know, mm-hmm. doing an internship or beginning or any good sort of like program will take you through every, let me just use something I'm familiar with, like theater. If you're getting your theater degree, you have to learn how to design the costumes. You have to learn how to light it. You have to learn how to do the sound. You have to learn how to produce it. You have to learn how to you know, if you're in film, you have to learn how to edit it. You have to learn all the pieces. And like somebody would come in and be like, but I just want to be on stage or screen or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 no. You need to learn what every single person in this production does before you get to be on stage so you can appreciate what everybody else does. And then also fast forward to now in the situation where we all have to do everything by ourselves. You know, anyone who listened to Jamie is really stoked right now because they know how to put out a press release, Right. I know I'm jumping all over uh, different professions, but the idea is the same that if you open up the mind to learn or if you are the boss and you are in the mindset of how can I teach this person or help them or how can I give them something back? So it feels to me like a more even relationship, even though, you know, somebody may be in a profession for decades and somebody may be starting. I think it's really interesting with all of this talk that there's so much talk of unionization and employee activism these days because it feels like people are I don't know it feels to me like maybe do you think it's like because people are scared to speak up for themselves or they've been penalized for speaking up for themselves and they just want to have a more definitive armor what's your take on that it's really fascinating. So, for example, the number of Rhodes Scholars today who are looking at uh, unionization and activism in the workplace has skyrocketed. So in our generation, uh, Rhodes Scholars were kind of more middle of the road. <laughs> Today's Rhodes Scholars are really looking at things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. They're looking at forming unions. And and there really has been a spike in that. Now, it'll be interesting to see what's going to happen, though, with the changing economy is, you know, as people start to get more afraid, kind of how does the changing economy not only interface with the growth in unionization, but also how does it interface with quiet quitting and with the great resignation? You know, unfortunately, what we're seeing is where we, before it was the employees who were really in the driver's seat. This was really kind of going hand in hand with this spike in unionization. Now it's starting to go the other way. And certainly in the Bay Area here, everyone is afraid, especially if you're in technology, afraid of losing their job. And so the employee getting to flex their muscle, unfortunately, I think is probably going to be tempered by that changing economy. Yeah. And by the layoffs, right? I mean, it, it mm-hmm. does seem like every every day when I open the news, there's another huge round of layoffs, which has to be disheartening mm-hmm. and scary. Yeah. And we, we've talked so much on this podcast about fear. That word seems to come up over and over and over again. So Laura, how do you view fear as it correlates to wellness? 
That's such a great question. And what is clear is that there has been not only a rise in depression, uh, there was a study that came out shortly after the pandemic started showing that rates of depression for Americans have tripled since the onset of the pandemic. But there's also been a giant rise in anxiety. And I really see both of those as stemming from fear. So I'm afraid. And so I close in and I become depressed. I disconnect from others because I'm afraid. And I'm afraid. So I become hypervigilant and really anxious. <laughs> and this is what we're seeing across the board. And, you know, if there's any elixir for this fear that we are feeling and how it manifests in, in the form of depression or anxiety, it's connection. It really is. It is love and connection. And I think it's also, you know, feeling like you're doing something that matters. I often think about Bronnie Ware. She is a hospice nurse who worked with dying patients for 15 years. What she found is she heard the same kinds of dying regrets over and over and over again. She tracked these. And one of the top, top, top dying regret was, and this ties to your YOLO theme here, uh, Jamie, was I wish I had led a life true to myself, not the one that others expected of me. And so if we talk about fear, I think that, you know, many of us have a fear like, oh my gosh, I'm living my practice life. I'm not living my real life. And I'm afraid <laughs> that I've kind of, that life has, has passed me by and I'm not living my true life. And then, you know, another top dying regret was I wish I had spent more time with my friends and I wish I had let myself be happier. Not I wish I had been happier, but I wish I had let myself be happier. But I think so much of this really comes down to connection. If we want to stem fear, we need to connect, especially if we've got this world turned upside down, whether we're talking about the economy or we're talking about Ukraine or we're talking about the pandemic that never seems to end. There's a lot of legitimate reasons for us to be afraid, for us to feel fear right now. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there are so many reasons to feel fear right now. And I, one of the things you said when you said, I wish I'd let myself be happy, the only thing I could think of, it was like so loud in my brain was like gratitude journal, gratitude, gratitude, like write down the things you're grateful for, recognize the things you're grateful for, no matter how small. But when you talk about, you know, connection and love being the antidote to depression, or I, I know those weren't your words, but <laughs> who's responsible for that in the workplace, right? So if we're circling back to the workplace, is it the responsibility of the employee or is it the responsibility of the employer? And if you're not in the same office, how could the employer actually know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this question. And it's a question that I ask a lot and not only in terms of happiness, but also just in terms of mental health, who's responsible. And I think that for so long, we have viewed mental health as something that is up to the individual. It's up to them to, to manage their emotions. And by the way, when we come to work, we check our emotions at the door. We don't talk about emotions. Now, meanwhile, what the research suggests is that people actually want to talk about their mental health at work, particularly younger workers. So one Monster Intelligence survey found that 91% of Gen Z workers want to talk about their mental health with their boss. Now, meanwhile, a paycheck study came out showing that over half of employees are afraid to talk about their mental health with their boss. So the first thing is in terms of how our managers and leaders are responsible, they are the chief architects of the culture. And the culture so often either enhances our mental well-being or it 
undermines it. So is it a culture of toxicity, something that we talked about earlier? Is it a culture of unfairness? That's a big one that I hear a lot. And that really creates a lot of distress and burnout for people is when they feel that there's unfairness. And so what are the leaders doing about that? Is there work overload? That is a huge driver of a lot of these mental health issues. And again, you know, that is up to the leaders to really to control that. So if we look at healthcare workers, for example, there are only two states that have any kind of regulation around patient load. And that is one of the key drivers of burnout. And so again, this is that disconnect between those wellness programs and, you know, building resiliency, individual resiliency. And when I work with these healthcare companies, those healthcare workers are like, do not tell me to be more resilient. (laughs) I'm so tired of hearing this. Uh, let's talk about what's happening instead with this patient overload. And let's do something about that. Or electronic health records. That's also a huge driver of a lot of these rates of burnout. So it's a lot of these structural issues that have to be dealt with. And on the team level, it's the dynamics within the team that really drives those mental health issues. And so those leaders, those team leaders need to be trained up on how to support mental well-being within the team. And it's training them on things like psychological safety or awakening compassion within the team. Such an important thing to touch on. And I think it's really interesting because we think across all of these different industries and categories, right? I think earlier when we were talking, I was thinking of, you know, corporate environment and workers and then remote workers. But when we're talking about, you know, frontline workers and nurses and people with patient loads and just people in general, I feel like every time I turn around, I hear of another friend that says, well, there's layoffs in my department and now I am doing the job of three people, but they just said, if you want to keep your job, that's the job now, you know? And they're just like, well, I I guess I just do same pay. Yeah. I guess I just do the work of three people now for the same pay. And it's, it's a very difficult time, right? It's just a very difficult time. So my last question for you is when we're talking about some of these remote workers in general, and this is kind of circling back to what we spoke about in the very beginning of this conversation, you know, I do think that many workers feel like they're stranded on a desert Island, even though they wanted it, they wanted it. They lobbied for it. They, they went on strike for it, but now they're like, but I'm lonely and I'm scared. Right? So what can companies make? maybe do. Do you have any true best practices that don't feel like a burden, that don't feel like the Zoom happy hour that nobody wants to attend, that ensures that remote workers feel included in the company culture and and that maybe their mental health is being tended after? Well, I I think the first thing is there's practices that we can be doing as individuals that can help us. So Heidi, you talked about the practice of gratitude. That's huge. And in fact, there's a study that came out of the University of Pennsylvania that found that if you simply name three good things, and for better effect, you write them down, and you do this every day for six weeks straight, it will literally rewire your brain to become more optimistic. And optimists, the research overwhelmingly suggests, are more resilient to stress. So that is a practice that every single one of us can take on for ourselves. And I often think about Viktor Frankl, who, uh, as you may recall, author of Man's Search for Meaning, and he lost almost his entire family during World War II. And he came up with this notion that while we may have little or no control over the circumstances in our lives, we have infinite power as to how we respond to those circumstances. That is our inner freedom. So every single one of us has that inner freedom, as difficult as the circumstances may be, and we can invoke practices like naming three good things or practicing gratitude. 
Now, then there's the organizational level, something that we talked about. What's happening across the organization to really ensure that people are cared for so that there aren't these perceptions of unfairness, so that people aren't overloaded with having to do the work of three. And so those are those policies that those executives need to be thinking about. And then there's a third way, and that is the team. And so what I often talk about is, yes, self-care is good, but team care is even better. And I've really seen this, you know, in person, like, for example, I worked with a medical department and in a medical department in which there was toxicity across the department and there was backstabbing and people were overworking and um, not treating each other well. There was one bright spot. And that was the team of physical therapists. And when I asked that, you know, this team, they work together really well. They had each other's backs. And when I asked them, what makes the difference here? Why is it that you all are such a bright spot? And all of them uniformly said, because of our team leader. And so whether or not well-being and mental health is part of the job description, every single team leader is uniquely positioned within the workplace to really enhance the well-being of their team. And they can create this little safe harbor, this oasis of well-being for their team. And that I have found this kind of team by team, we take care of ourselves. That is where I find the greatest hope lies in the workplace whether it's in-person or remote. Absolutely wonderful. You're really leaving us with a little bit of a sense of hope amidst a very challenging conversation. I thank you so much for your expertise today. We do always end with one more segment, which we call Karma Call. And I (laughs) sing it and then I hand it over to Heidi. Yes. Thank you, Jamie, for singing. I will explain that karma is the Sanskrit word for action. So we ask all of our amazing knowledge-filled guests, what is one small actionable item that our listeners could try on for a short period of time that would yield a large result? Small action, big result. And is that a question for me? Yeah. To respond to? You would be be the knowledge-filled guest I was talking about. (laughs) Oh, I love it. I think that one action that every listener could try And actually, my asking the question is perfect setup for this. I think that so often we feel like we have to have all the answers. But in fact, we can begin thinking more about asking the right questions. And I find so often that when I ask good questions, that people just light up. And so we can begin asking one another really, really good questions as individuals, as teams, and as organizations. That is a good one. We, I don't think we've ever had one like that. I no, really like we haven't. that piece of advice. Um, it really got me thinking. Thank you, Laura. Hey, Laura, where can our listeners find you online and on the gram? Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. First and foremost, loved our conversation, Jamie and Heidi. Uh, You can find me at motioninfusion.com or Laura Putnam. That's P-U-T-N-A-M.com. I'm very active on LinkedIn, also on Instagram, as well as on Twitter. Amazing. Well, we thank you so much for being here with us today. We thank you all at home for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to follow us on the gram at Off the Gram Podcast. We'll see you next time. 